Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We are continuing our study through this Gospel of Luke. And as you've already heard, this morning we come to one of those very sad and hard texts where we see an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, really the leader among them, denying his Lord. Pick up with me at Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Then they seized him, seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he, Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, even as we read this text, we know that any one of us, Lord, could be Peter. That in a moment of fear, in a moment of great temptation, we could deny you. Father God, as we recognize, as we confess to you even the frailties of our, of our own flesh, we come to you, Lord, asking to be strengthened. That as you have preserved this testimony, Lord, even such a difficult failure in the life of Peter, yet, Lord, even this testifies to your grace. Even when we are faithless, Lord, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And so, Lord, lead us in this truth. May we draw near to you, Lord. May we not depend upon our own strength. May we not, Lord, be, give way to our own egos, our own fear. But may we stand steadfast in and for Christ our King. Lead us now in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is your worst spiritual failure? I mean, your absolute worst. What is that time or that instance that stands out above all others? That time where you really, really just blew it. The time where you acted in horrible and overt disobedience to the Lord. What was that time for you? I want you to think about that time, that instance. 
And then I want you to imagine with me what that would have been like to have your failure recorded in Scripture for everyone to see for the last 2,000 years. That's what Peter lived with. And it humbled him and it shaped him as a leader of the apostles. Last week we saw how Judas led a mob of Roman soldiers, temple guards, and Jewish officials to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Peter charged ahead in that moment and cut off the ear of Malchus, a temple guard. But Jesus stopped Peter. He healed the man's ear and he called the mob out for their cowardice. That leads us all to verse 54. With verse 54, we are told that even as the disciples scattered, Peter didn't go very far. He had been following Christ this very night at a distance after his arrest. And the parallel passage in John 18, verses 15 and 16, tells us that another disciple of Christ, who was known to the high priest, was able to get Peter past the gatekeeper to Caiaphas' house and into the courtyard to wait there as Jesus was on trial inside. This courtyard was going to be ground zero for Peter's greatest failure. But as the song says, when our shame is deeper than the sea, his grace is deeper still. Now we're going to look at this text in just two points this morning. We're going to see the tragic escalation of denial, and we're going to spend the majority of our time on that first point, and then the second point will be the bittersweet grace of conviction. So let's let's first consider the tragic escalation of denial. Now, as we come to this first point, the first question on our minds, the one that we think about as we look at what is unfolding here is, what in the world is going on with Peter? Well, we can answer that question with three things. First of all, Peter was pridefully determined to prove his faithfulness to Jesus at all costs, even if it meant following him into the proverbial lion's den. Secondly, Peter was so determined to prove himself that he was totally ignoring what Jesus had told him about not needing his help, and also what Jesus had told him about his threefold denial. Thirdly, Peter fundamentally understood, misunderstood rather, the significance of what was taking place because he failed to rightly weigh what Christ had taught him all along. Christ had taught Peter all along about the nature of his kingdom and his redemptive purpose as the Messiah. And if Peter had been listening to Jesus, he wouldn't have been in the the courtyard at Caiaphas' house this night. So in verse 55, there was Peter, completely misdirected by his own pride, misinformed by his own notions, in the courtyard of his master's greatest earthly enemy, sitting down around a fire to await what was going to happen. Peter was right where Satan wanted him to be, but Peter was also right where Christ had ordained for him to be. Being in this place of temptation is what gave rise to his first denial. Look there with me at verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. So Peter's there, he gathers around the fire with the other crowd that's there, it's a little chilly out, he's looking to get a little warmth, but in the light, someone recognizes him. And this little servant girl, she wasn't speaking to Peter, she was speaking to the crowd of people that were gathered around the fire with Peter, a crowd that contained many other servants of Caiaphas' house and many other servants of the Sanhedrin. 
Now, Peter, for his part, he was probably undoubtedly trying to be quiet and keep a low profile as he waited. In his misdirected bravery, he was probably ready to take on any man in order to stay near Jesus. But it was this little servant girl that caught him off guard. And that's what the word for servant girl literally denotes, a young female servant, probably a girl in her early teens or tweens. Now that Peter was sitting near the fire, she was able to get a good look at his face, and she recognized him as one of those who had been in close company of Jesus. Remember that Jesus and his disciples had been in and out of Jerusalem all week long, in and out of the temple grounds all week long. Thousands of people had come to hear Jesus, come to see Jesus. Some had listened to him out of mere curiosity, and it would have been very easy to see who his disciples were as they stood nearest to him caught off guard by this young girl, yet recognizing the danger he was in, Peter quickly blurted out a response. Look at verse 57. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Denied is a, is a term that means literally to disavow and reject. Peter directly disavowed any knowledge of Jesus, saying, I do not know him. You know, the him that called Peter away from the Sea of Galilee and from being a fisherman, the him that Jesus, uh, that, that Peter had spent time with over the last three and a half years, the him who had taught Peter, the him who had revealed himself to Peter, the him that Peter confessed as the Christ, the Son of the living God, that him is the very him that Peter now denied knowing. And, and if we stop and think about it, If you think about the circumstance, you realize how foolish this first denial is, right? If you happen to be the one person in Jerusalem during the Passover who didn't know anything about Jesus the Galilean, how is it that you would come to be at the home of the high priest in the middle of the night awaiting the decision of a secret gathering of the Jewish high council who is inside with Jesus? Why would you be there? The simple fact that Peter was there in the courtyard meant that he either had a significant relationship to Jesus or he had a significant relationship to one of the other officials. And since this little girl worked in the home of the high priest, she likely knew Peter had no business being there for one of the officials. Peter was brave, but he certainly wasn't thinking. After his first denial, the parallel account in Matthew tells us that Peter decided to get a little distance between himself and the others. You know, he moved away from the fire and over toward the gate where it was darker, where he could get away quickly if he needed to. And then we see what happens in verse 58 of our text. Look at verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. A little later means probably about a half an hour or so passed, but someone else saw him and recognized him. And this person spoke directly to Peter this time, calling him out as one of the disciples of Jesus. You're one of them. You're one of those disciples. But Peter said, man, I am not. Once again, his courage evaporated and he denied Christ for a second time. Again, if we pull in the parallel passage in Matthew 26, verse 72, it says that Peter, the second time, he denied it with an oath. That means his second denial was much stronger than his first. For an oath is literally invoking something sacred to attest to your truthfulness. Peter uttered a solemn oath appealing to something sacred to give his lie veracity. 
And again, even if Peter didn't use the name of God, every Jewish oath was considered to be uttered in God's presence, and so Peter was effectively calling upon God to bear witness to his lie. Go on to verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And so for this third time, we see that concern over Peter's identity is lingering in the group. Matthew tells us that it was a group of bystanders who approached him this third time, and one of them spoke and insisted that they knew who Peter was. They have heard him speak enough now to know that Peter was certainly a Galilean. You know, it's kind of like when, when we go outside the great state of Alabama, many of you and people hear you talk, they're, oh, you, they know you're from the south. They know that you're from a different region of the country. Well, it was that way for Galileans. They had a, a particular accent. And so they, they recognized that Peter was a Galilean, and Galileans weren't normally among those who served the Sanhedrin. And so they confronted Peter again about being one of Jesus' disciples. And so Peter was cornered. He was now being pressed by a whole group, and so he unleashed his most vociferous denial of the evening. Look at verse 60. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And once again, if we pull in the parallel passage in Matthew 26, 74, it says that in this third denial, Peter then began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And that word for curse, that word for curse literally means to pronounce anathema. It was a formal denunciation. And swearing, that was a Greek verb meaning to swear an oath. Basically, Peter in this third denial let loose with a vitriolic rant. He was calling down curses and swearing out oaths in an angry and malicious fashion. Perhaps he was trying to scare those who were questioning him. But more than likely, it was fear coupled with anger that caused him to lose all self-control. Either way, the scripture records for us Words that are very serious. What we are meant to see here is a disciple who had lost all bearing. Peter might have tried to fool himself by saying that he was there for Christ, but when pressed, Peter reverted back to pure selfishness and pure self-preservation. His pride had led him to a place he swore he would never go, and now he had arrived at that place of denial in horrifically grand fashion. How did he get here? How did Peter get to this place? What is it that led to this threefold denial? Well, one commentator gives us an important answer to that question in his commentary. He notes that Peter's denial was not just a spontaneous response to, to unexpected danger or embarrassment. Peter had literally been building toward this denial all evening. Think about it. The first step towards denial was Peter boasting in himself. Remember that when Jesus was telling the disciples that they would fall away, G Peter was the one who spoke up and said, Oh no, Lord, even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. Peter considered himself incapable of disloyalty. In his mind, it was inconceivable that he would fall away. He had a deluded, unfounded confidence in himself that would be his ruin Secondly, his second step towards denial was his defiant rejection of what Jesus said. Jesus had said his disciples would scatter. Peter refuted him. And so Jesus said to him, listen, Peter, let me tell you, the rooster is not going to crow this day until you deny me three times. 
And even after that, we see in Matthew 26, 35, Peter even refuted Jesus after that saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter blatantly contradicted Christ and continued to defend his own faithfulness. His third step towards denial was prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. His failure to watch and pray in the garden was evidence of his overwrought sense of self-confidence. Even when Christ woke those three disciples up and warned them, saying, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, you need to pray. Even after Jesus warned them, Peter fell back asleep. He saw no weakness in himself, and therefore he slept with a selfish sense of independence. His fourth step towards denial was his self-generated impulsiveness. Rather than seeking his Lord's direction and help, Peter impulsively took matters into his own hands. Jesus had taught them that it was the Father's plan for Jesus to suffer and die and be raised from the grave. But when the mob arrived to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? He drew a sword and went to hack it. He acted impulsively and foolishly according to what he wanted, not what God wanted. And his fifth step towards denial was allowing himself to be in a place of great spiritual danger. Peter willingly went into a place of great spiritual danger, a place where his faith would be tested beyond his ability to resist. Peter was in the courtyard at Caiaphas' house because he was being driven by his own ego rather than a humble dependence upon Jesus. And so when the temptation came, Through a a young little maid, yet no less, Peter's self-professed allegiance to Christ crumbled in stunning fashion. Peter was a paper tiger. Let us remember when we see this, brothers and sisters, that confidence in your own spirituality, in your own maturity, in your own abilities, can always be a temptation to ruin. This is why scripture warns us of this over and over again. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 is just one example. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so I want us to think about here what's going on in the larger picture. As Peter's there in the courtyard denying Jesus, think about this with me. While Christ was on trial inside the house, Peter was on trial outside the house. While Christ was falsely accused inside and said nothing, Peter was rightly accused and responded with lies and blasphemies. Even when Jesus was condemned and beaten and spit upon, he held true to his father's purpose. Outside, no one even laid a finger on Peter, but he faltered and he denied his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. Christian, as as we read in this text about Peter, does any of this describe you? Are you a paper tiger? Do you talk a really good game and then crumble when you're confronted about your faith? Do you seek to hide your relationship with Christ outside of these four walls? Do you, talk a, a, do you talk and think very highly of your own spiritual maturity, and yet when you're tested or called to account for your confession, you stumble? Has your pride led you to think very highly of your own strength, your own abilities? 
Have you charged into a place of great temptation only to find yourself cornered by your own ego and conquered by your own flesh? You see, behind all of this bravado, behind all of it, Peter was afraid. And fear is a very powerful thing. Fear causes us to do what is easy rather than doing what is right. Fear causes us to seek the consensus of men rather than the will of God. Fear causes us to, be, to, to speak up when we should be silent and to be silent when we should speak up. And it's because we're insecure and fearful of what other people think of us. Fear causes us to covet control and to take matters into our own hands rather than trusting the Lord and resting in his person and word. Fear amplifies the opinions and the problems and the solutions of man, and fear diminishes the wisdom and power and sovereignty of God. Fear causes us to excuse, reason away, and ignore what God has clearly said in his word in order to justify our sinful choices. Fear makes us unable to learn, to grow, and to change because of what we might have to give up. We might have to give up what is comfortable in order to be conformed to Christ. Fear causes us to be passive in the face of evil and casual about the glory of God. Fear causes us to conceal sin and shame in our lives when God's word is so clear that we should ask others for help. And in summary, fear reveals exactly where we have staked our trust. Think about that. Fear reveals exactly where we have staked our trust. Because if your trust is, trust is staked in the sovereign Lord of the universe, you have, no, you have no reason to be afraid. But if you are afraid, it means you're trusting in something or someone other than Christ. Christian, the good news is that you don't have to be ruled by fear. Understand that Christ is the Savior who has conquered sin and he has conquered the grave to set you free. You don't have to live by fear of man. You don't have to live by fear of the devil, fear of the world. You don't have to live by fear of your own flesh. And I mean a slavish fear. There's a sense in which we should all fear our flesh, but in a righteous way. Christ has set us free from fear. He is a faithful and sovereign and compassionate Lord to every single person who trusts in him. And we need to understand this very clearly. Fear is conquered by the love of Christ. Fear is conquered by love of Christ. He bore the most fearsome and excruciating punishment in the universe. He bore the very wrath of God for sinners so that we don't have to be afraid. Listen to the words of 1 John 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The love and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God means that you don't have to be enslaved by fear. You don't have to live by fear of what men think of you. It means you never have to fear that you might suffer loss 
or, or, or suffer harm for doing what he says is right. It means you never have to covet control because you rest in the one who loves you and has perfect control over all things. Because of the love of Christ, you don't have to fear change. You don't have to fear evil. You don't fear, have to fear the judgment of men and hide your sin in shame. Indeed, brothers and sisters, the love of Christ is the path to spiritual fearlessness. Do you understand his love for you? When you look at his life, his righteous life, understanding that he lived that for you, when you look at the cross and see the sacrifice he gave there as the very lamb of God, do you understand the love that was poured out there for you? When he is risen from the grave, and he proclaims his word and all of creation, believe in me who has defeated death and you shall have eternal life. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that that is the very call of love? You don't have to be afraid. The love of Christ is how you can be set free from fear even today. Stake your trust in him. In him. You will never have control. You will never have the strength you need in the face of temptation on your own. You will never be able to conquer anything or anyone by yourself. But in Christ, because of who He is, because of His power, His strength, His sovereignty, his intercession on your behalf, his advocacy for you, because he is at work to, at, in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And we do not need to fear. Believe in him. That is the call of the gospel. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Apart from him, apart from faith in Christ, there's only death and destruction and ruin in eternal hell. Separated from all the grace and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus Christ our Lord, knowing only the wrath of God for eternity, but believe in Jesus Christ. And you need no longer fear condemnation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. That then takes us to the second and final point, the bittersweet grace of conviction. The bittersweet grace of conviction, picking up midway through verse 60. Look here. Luke uses the word immediately because he wants to paint for us a very vivid picture. Just as the last words of cursing left Peter's lips, just as his final words of, 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 of just pronouncing anathema and swearing and cursing, I do not know the man, as soon as the last word left his mouth, immediately the rooster crowed. In the midst of his fury and wrath, Peter heard the sign that Christ told him he would hear. And right then he remembered. And then right at that same moment, and we don't know how this happened, perhaps it was through a gate or an open window, perhaps by this time the council members and the soldiers had brought Jesus out into the courtyard to continue beating him. We don't know how it happened, regardless of how it happened. Look at what it says. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter's eyes as that word of last word of cursing and bitterness left his mouth the rooster crowed and at that exact same moment Peter's eyes met the piercing gaze of Jesus 
what would that do to you? Imagine that. A man that you had followed and loved and knew was the Lord as that last word leaves your mouth cursing. A rooster crows. His eyes meet yours. Peter was ruined. He was struck. Verse 61b. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. When Jesus told those words to Peter the first time, Peter denied it to his face. Then all evening long, he had acted independently and selfishly, following his own plan instead of God's plan. In trying to prove himself loyal, he had done precisely what Christ had warned him he would do. With cursing and swearing and wrath, he had denied his master three times over. And this realization led to Peter being overcome. Look at verse 62. And he went out and wept bitterly. This was not a few tears trickling down the face. This was Peter in an agony of conviction over how he had failed his Lord. He had been warned. He had been told this was going to happen. And he denied it. And here he was. A strong apostle. Thrice denier of Christ. Peter went out and he wailed. Peter fell to the ground weeping. So all that is wrapped up when it says he wept bitterly. Believer, do you understand this morning that the eyes of Christ, your Savior, are always on you? Do you understand that the gaze of Jesus Christ, your Lord, is ever fixed upon you? When you have clicked that mouse to indulge the lust of your eyes and the lust of your flesh, Jesus has seen you. When you have uttered those lies to protect your reputation or to look good in the eyes of others, Jesus has seen you. When you have lost your temper and profaned his name again with your spouse or with your children, his eyes have been fixed upon you. Every time you have valued money or success or comfort more than you have treasured Christ, He has been right there watching you. Every time you have chosen sleep or entertainment or pursuing Him in Scripture reading, over pursuing Him in Scripture reading and prayer, He has seen you. When you have despised the authorities that He has placed in your life, and when you have rebelled against your parents and even rebelled against Him, His eyes have been upon you. When you are questioning and aching in your heart with loneliness or as a result of insufferable loss, His eyes also have never left you. 
when you are struggling out and struggling and, and calling out to him and crying for help and crying for direction and crying for healing and crying for comfort, know, dear child, that his eyes have also been fixed upon you. You have never been alone. No matter what it is, whether it's through your deepest needs or your deepest struggles, he has been there through the depression, through the anxiety, through the hurt, his eyes have been fixed upon you. And through every, every useless word, every gluttonous bite, every murderous thought, every lustful look, every doubted promise, he has seen you. Christ has seen every single one because his eyes are always fixed upon his children. But understand this. Understand this, dear child of God. His eyes are not fixed upon you to condemn you. He does not pierce you with his gaze to consume you with fire. He looks at you with perfect love. He has fixed his gaze upon you so that you will know he could never forsake one whom he has adopted as his own child. Jesus has set his gaze upon you so that you will know he has given his body, his blood, his life to redeem you from those very sins and shortcomings. Peter looked at Jesus and rightly felt convicted. Jesus looked at Peter and felt pity for him, for where his pride had taken him. But understand, Jesus also looked at Peter with hope because Jesus knew by his sacrifice, Peter would be forgiven. By his sacrifice, Peter would be made whole again. And so, believer, look into the eyes of Christ and be broken over your sin as Peter was. But by faith, also look into the eyes of your Savior. And as you're weeping and repenting, walk also, walk forth in his freedom and his love. Remember that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember the words of Isaiah 66, 2, where God says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Remember, dear Christian, that God does not abandon soldiers on the battlefield. Listen, there, 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 is, there is no unknown. There is no lost one in the army of God. Christ will always come for you if you are his. It is that reality of his promise that underlies the bittersweet grace of conviction, right? That's why I call it the bittersweet. It's bitter because it is so hard to come again to this place where we are given over to our pride and our lust and our anger and our sin. It's horrific. And yet at the same time, it is sweet because in that moment of conviction, we know that it is Christ. It is his spirit at work to convict us. It is Christ himself who is working to bring us, to grant us that repentance. It is Christ who will receive us back with open arms as a savior who is ever ready to forgive those who turn in faith to him. 
Yes, believer, it is hard to see how we have failed and defamed Christ in our hearts, but it is very sweet to confess and to be washed clean by the grace of our Lord. It is sweet to know that the grace of our Lord will cause us to persevere, that the one who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And so as you read this text, as you look at this text, and you think of the the terrible and utter failure of Peter, see yourself there. See yourself there. But also as you look here, see the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never forsake you if you are his. Who will always forgive you as you turn to him who will see you presented complete and full in his Father's presence for all eternity in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your failings. Behold him and love him with all your heart. And as you love him, fight that good fight of faith. It is that same Savior that that welcomes you as, as his child to this table this morning. Remember that this table, this ordinance, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not a time for us to celebrate our strengths. It's a time for us to celebrate our salvation. This time where we come to the table, we do not come to this table because we are worthy. We are bid to come to this table because he who is worthy for us has welcomed us. If you are here today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ bids you come. You know, we always look in Acts chapter 2 and we see there how the people responded to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And it said those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. If that's you, then come. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus and identified with a a biblical church, come. If you're struggling and weak, maybe even this week you have had some of those colossal failures. If Christ is your Lord, come. Know the blessing of his forgiveness, his grace, even at this table, and be strengthened to engage in that battle with your flesh again, not in your strength, but in his strength. But if you're here today and this does not describe you, if you are not in Christ, then we ask you to allow these elements to pass by. The Bible also warns that those who partake of the supper in an unworthy matter, which means without faith, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And we would spare you that judgment, friend. We would ask you to take this time as we partake of the supper to consider your own soul to consider where you stand before a holy God and whether or not you have believed in Christ. Make good use of this time, for judgment is coming. But if you are here today and you believe in the Lord Jesus, come and be renewed by his grace, refreshed in his presence. Bear out the faith that you have in your heart, trusting that the body and the blood of the Lord have secured your standing before a holy God. Be encouraged by that truth and come.